Tate would say that they are pretty tired of having to really teach not to the curriculum but to the minutiae of requirements that are specified within uh, a training package and almost local flexibility to design really courses that meets the needs of students which was the original intent of our standards-based approach. Now there is no doubt that competency works in some areas of training but in other areas I don't think that level of specification works. Competency-based training or CBT is the model of curriculum at the heart of the VET system and for some it's a shorthand way of referring to the system of VET training packages. But critics are arguing that the VET sector's reliance upon training packages is failing to meet the real-world needs of students and industry because of the way it defines and therefore teaches competency. With me today to discuss this issue, I have Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. Welcome, Simon. Hello, Steve. And Craig Robertson, CEO of TAFE Directors Australia. Hello, Craig. Good Steve. It seems to me this discussion is going to hinge on our definition of the term competency. So I'll start by asking what it means to both of you in your various roles within the VET system. Uh, Craig, I'll start with you. All right, thank you. I sort of try to think about this when we... Uh, come to think about qualifications um, and curriculum um, and they are really the instrument of government so for me and governments then basically say those qualifications are legitimate through accreditation uh, arrangements so from my viewpoint sort of governments need to think about why do they need these qualifications and in what shape and form and that's then where we get to competency. What I'd argue is um, that the nature of work and even the nature of the way that we work and even the world is changing substantially and that really competencies uh, don't work for uh, a, modern, a modern world. Um, and um, I think what we need to be able to do is to start from a broader construct of what we're trying to achieve Competency may be part of that, but not the full answer is my position. Simon? Yeah, look, broadly speaking, I agree with Craig, particularly as we look at the future world of work. Uh, the other issue here is that we are teaching a narrow range of competencies that are considered to be aligned to an occupation or an occupational need. And that probably isn't as enduring as it could be, particularly as we... Uh, telling ourselves that the world of work's changing quite rapidly and we'll have multiple jobs and the nature and attributes of the skills required are going to continue to have to adapt, including the individuals having to adapt, and in which case they can be quickly redundant. Uh, and our utilisation of what's already out there is already skewed towards a very few uh, qualifications which have high volumes and some that have virtually nothing. Um, just before we move any further, if I threw that question out across the VET sector, would I get a fairly consistent response in lines with what you two gentlemen said, or is there likely to be quite a discrepancy across the VET sector system when we talk about what, do, what is meant by competency? I think the core definition of competency would be okay, but yeah. um, whether it's the right tool for educating and training people, you'll get a very diverse range of views. <laughs> Fair call. I, and I think some people would immediately go, competency works if we take the, the German-Swiss um, concept of it, uh, which is a far broader and deeper definition of a 
competency as opposed to how uh, countries like Australia and England have defined competencies. What, can you go a bit further into that for us? Uh, so the general sense in the, um, in the German model and the Swiss model, and of course we've got to remember they have a very different sort of cultural background to how they um, particularly train people, um, but they, they make sure that within their, within their sort of course design and curriculum construct um, that one competency is really, really quite broad. And it's about a, it's really what many of us in Australia would call capability. Uh, you'd learn the full range um, and scope of doing a particular, um, particular skill. Whereas we tend to segment our competencies down to quite um, a low level. Uh, and that's exactly what's occurred in England as well, because in the end, we inherited the competency system from the UK um, back in the uh, mid-1980s. We're going to come back to uh, that sort of uh, thinking uh, towards the end of our chat. But, Craig, I'd like to turn now and look at the world through the eyes of TAFE. There, there must be something valuable about structuring training packages within a competency-based system because such a system clearly spells out what has to be taught and how that is assessed. Now, if that's right... Will that make this conversation we're having uncomfortable for people who are enjoying the clarity of their roles as vet trainers and assessors at the moment? Uh, it's, a, it's a really good question. Uh, I would argue that most people within a TAFE would say um, that they are pretty tired of having to really teach, not to the curriculum, uh, but to the minutiae of requirements that are specified within a training package and almost local flexibility to design really courses and teach in a way that meets the needs of students, which was the original intent of our standards-based approach has sort of been uh, washed out of uh, the system. Now, there is no doubt that competency works in some uh, areas of training and will always go to uh, the trade areas uh, where we need to be able to make sure uh, that people can actually do the specific technical tasks that are uh, required. But in other areas where there is not defined occupational outcomes, and in fact you can fulfil quite a range of roles when you get into the workplace, I don't think that level of specification works. Mm. I, so, and then so to follow up in terms of how do we think TAFEs would uh, uh, respond, most of the feedback I receive from uh, TAFEs, admittedly this is from TAFE leaders, is um, sort of their lack of flexibility to be able to respond at um, the local level. Um, and in fact, they really want to be known to be good educators. Um, um, and what they'd like to be able to have is to have that trust put in them to design good educational uh, experiences for students. Craig, are you talking about uh, self-accreditation here? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not overly, but I, what I'm talking about in the first instance is if you follow through um, training packages, and I can give you sort of the figures that I'm trying to think about, one competency can give rise to at least about uh, a dozen um, performance criteria, and each performance criteria then can then give rise to um, each sort of, I uh, can't, can't quite remember the term, but uh, assessment, evidence and the like. So if you think about a qualification with 12 units of competency, um, uh, it becomes just specification um, overload. 
we have to take some of that load off um, our trainers. Then when we think about some occupations that are really quite nebulous, uh, quite wide-ranging occupational outcomes, even entrepreneurship, uh, I think we need a bit more flexibility at the TAFE level. Um, and if that is self-accreditation, uh, then that's what I would be arguing for as well. Is the creation of all those assessment criteria for each competency crafted in a way that tries to cover every situation in which that competency might be called upon uh, or is it actually because particular competencies are exposed to a whole lot of nuance and complexity when they're being uh, when someone needs to have such a competency but you it, that's almost you can never achieve that um, it's like saying I'm going to become a perfect ballerina one day um, uh, which is which is sort of you're like you can never get to that particular point what you have to be able to do is to trust in your educators to be able to deal with all of those uh, circumstances. I suspect what's happened within training packages is, as the sector has always had this concern about quality, um, it is a natural tendency for all players in the sector to say, oh, I'll deal with complexity by creating more specification. And what we've done is just create too much specification and it's taken away the spark um, of that whole educational experience, which should really underpin uh, vocational education. So there's this elaborate framework that then develops in, in a well-meaning way over time. But now we have the criticism that uh, vet training package framework just can't keep up with the pace of change happening in the workplace landscape. So uh, how do you see a way forward here, Craig? Are there any, how do we dismantle some of this or modify the model uh, at the base of how we pull these uh, packages together? Okay, so let's look at the world of work or the world that we're wanting to prepare people for. I think the first order is we have to accept that not every outcome is an industry outcome. There's a lot of outcomes that are for the individual, which therefore means there has to be a shared arrangement for development of qualifications. That said, there is no doubt we don't want to go to the situation where providers are defining uh, sort of content of qualifications that bears no resemblance to what industry needs. So we need to be able to make sure, particularly for some occupations like the trades, for example, that there is very clear and robust competencies that we are uh, going towards. Then I think we can come back to some broader uh, curriculum um, that gives people broader capabilities. One of the things I've always failed to understand in the vocational education and training system recognising that a fair number of people who come through into the sector would have literacy and numeracy problems or would not have the right level for uh, a modern workplace, um, that we don't, we consider that as an add-on. Um, that's not part of a core uh, training or educational experience that we, um, that we should offer. So I do think we could look at a fundamental restructuring of how we define our qualifications and I reckon we could bring them down to quite a significant um, reduced number. Yeah, I think just on the literacy and numeracy stuff, there are a range of programs that do exist where they do teach those core foundation skills as part of another program of study. Often, though, they are a different product and are co-taught or taught in tandem with the core qualifications. So I think you can get around some of those literacy and numeracy issues. I absolutely support Craig's argument for 
the utilisation of the product that we have out there, we just have way too many qualifications that are either underutilised or totally not utilised. And that tells the story for me. And look, for me, there's an economic and efficiency argument out of what I'm saying as well. Part of the problem that we have at the moment is we have an assumption um, that we have a qualification that defines competencies, which in Australia has got ourselves to the point where we really define tasks associated with a particular job. Um, And we've moved away from uh, a whole pile of process type jobs in the Australian economy. Uh, We talk to a lot of jobs now that are in the services sector where you need interpersonal skills, knowledge and all that sort of stuff. And so you're not following preset routines. Um, So what we need to be able to do is to say, why don't we turn that on its head a bit? Why don't we go, let's look at learning outcomes across a particular set of fields, and it could be particular industries and the like. Um, Do that first, which would then make quite clear the underpinning procedural knowledge and even the scientific knowledge that you would require uh, to to do a job that's trained by the vet sector. And we all acknowledge that there are a lot of people that are qualified, good qualified vet workers that have the know-how. And so, so how we deliver that know-how. Then if they've got that know-how, imagine all the competencies that you could define uh, from that. So what I'm saying is let's start with the learning outcomes first. Let's make sure they line up with broad industry underpinning knowledge, both scientific and procedural. And then you can you could have a, a bucket load of competencies that would make somebody far more um, transferable across a whole range of jobs in the economy, including into self-employment. This gets close to another area that I saw as I was reading some of the research papers before our chat today, and that was talk about the inclusion of theoretical knowledge as a core part of the units of competency, but it does seem that where there is theoretical knowledge, it is related to specific tasks, rather than the sort of theory that can equip the student to apply that thinking in broader context. Is that something we're capable of addressing or should be addressing, the inclusion of more theory and theoretical elements uh, within the, the VET system? Uh, it would certainly be a challenge in the system at the moment because we've created a training workforce um, that is quite used to becoming uh, following and compliant with uh, training packages, uh, but that shouldn't be an excuse uh, for not trying it. If you think about all the reports that are coming out, including the latest report from Deloitte, which is really saying the future is going to be sort of uh, knowledge work um, across most areas of the economy, um, we need to do it. We have to do it. Otherwise, we um, are really marooning a whole pile of people out of the vet system into jobs that won't be there. It sounds like we've got a big job ahead of us if we really want to make this system more attuned to where things are changing in the workplace. Um, And you might have touched on some of this, but the process of isolating some common competencies that apply across sectors so that students can learn these uh, skills, a bit like the, um, the Swiss Army knife set of skills that can be applied in different situ- situations. Is that something that we could start with as a stepping stone towards reform? Yeah, look, that's something that 
is already being thought through and the notion of having, I think they call it banks of units that can be transferable across a whole range of different qualifications is already sort of on the way. I think in terms of taking this forward, we know what sectors we're talking about. So if you take Craig's analogy, there are some of the traditional trades which are still competency-based format and the way we do it now is probably reasonably applicable going forward. But there are clearly sectors, not the least the tech sector or the IT sector, where we are going to need a different approach. And in in which case, we shouldn't be bound by the standards we currently have. We should try and look at how we can flex up those standards to enable in specific areas pilots or a different approach to the way we construct qualifications um, because we know that they are different from those that have been created in the past for specific occupations and tasks. It's not, it's, it's, we have the wit to do that if we have the will. Correct. And the other point I'd like to add in that is that we now have the circumstances where we have the current federal government and indeed uh, premiers and first ministers that are saying, look, we want vocational education and training to have the same standing as higher education. Well, the problem that we've got, if we define a qualification to a particular job, most people are pretty savvy about what's, what's involved in that job, whether it could be low-paid, insecure work, etc., etc. It's no wonder that people have um, jumped into the higher education system or be they're not sure about their job outcomes at the end of it, they are probably saying, well, I've got a better chance to pick up a broader range of jobs rather than this one-for-one sort of philosophy that we have in vocational education and training. And they know full well what sort of level of pay and security is at the end of it. We have to really fundamentally look at what we offer in terms of aspiration and career growth through the qualifications that we that we give. So it's, it's not a surprise that there are a lot of people who naturally uh, go to the trades, uh, particularly males, unfortunately, but they can see, well, I need to get through this apprenticeship. Um, once I'm qualified, once I've got my ticket, I've got a pretty good life ahead of me in terms of whether I can start up my own business or I can actually generate a reasonable um, salary return from it. For a lot of the other qualifications that lead to jobs, you can't really say that. Craig, when you talked about the the comparisons there between tertiary and vet sector, there's another uh, set of comparisons that I've, I've seen in some of the reading I've done, and it relates to the delivery of vet for secondary school students. And I wonder whether what is being delivered in that approach at the moment is thought of on par with vet training that happens outside of the secondary school system. Is one seen as the poor, is the secondary one seen as the poor cousin to the other, or is, is it they both viewed with some degree of equity at the moment? Simon? This is an interesting debate because uh, there was a, a change to the nomenclature of what we used to call vet in schools to now calling it vet for secondary school students. And it was fundamentally predicated on the perception that the vet that was done in a school was a different type of vet from done outside of school. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, changing the name doesn't change much. And certainly my experience is there are all sorts of models for how vet is delivered in a school and some are clearly not as good as others. 
And uh, because of the massive growth in school-based VET, there's generally a propensity to have that taught within a school by a school teacher and then quality assured by a registered training organisation. And that is not the same necessarily as going to a registered training organisation externally or to a TAFE college um, who are steeped in the fundamentals of vocational education. So the different pedagogies, the different missions of the schools and then do give rise to differences in the way VET is delivered. And, uh, you know, one is more expensive than the other, and that is an, another barrier to this. But I think there's a, there's a valid argument that there is some VET delivered in schools that is of a lesser quality than uh, VET, mainstream VET delivered by registered training organisations. And unfortunately, despite the, um, the real sort of, um, uh, what would you call it, um, the really good intention of establishing our comprehensive schooling movements when we um, basically merge technical schools with uh, high schools to give people a broad range of uh, options going forward. Unfortunately, sometimes within the school system, because they tend to be directed towards getting people into university, they can sometimes view these VET programs as... Um, second rate or for those people who aren't going to be heading towards um, towards university. I would not accuse all schools of that, but it could be, it can be a natural thing that can play out. And we always have to bear in mind that there are some brilliant schools mm. uh, that are doing some really great uh, VET uh, programs. And they're the ones that we should be trying to emulate. And I think the important thing that from the VET in schools or however, the term that um, Simon used, <laughs> is the underpinning thing of what we would call, what I call situational learning. Uh, we know there's a whole range of young people who do not learn well out of books. doesn't mean they're dumb. It just means they learn a different way. And sometimes that's from um, a situational perspective, sort of doing things, applying things, and then... Uh, learning from that particular point. And I think it's that pedagogical approach that we need to be able to focus on uh, and then look at down the track. Because part of the problem that people complain about VET in schools about is they end up with a, a part qualification or a qualification that they expect will get full credit when they go into the formal workplace or um, into further training in VET. And it's often not recognised. Um, so we do need to somehow work out um, to be able to make sure that that stuff is recognised if it's legitimate training. And I'm hoping the VET for secondary school students is connected or hitched to the rest of the VET sector. If we're talking about being agile and responding to changes in the workplace, that there are resources afoot and plenty to make sure that what is being taught in the schools is keeping pace with the changes that are happening elsewhere in the VET sector. Am I being overly optimistic, Simon? Oh, no, I think, if anything, you know, um, you're probably looking at an issue that doesn't exist. They do use the same products. They still use training packages in, in the main. They do sometimes have their local versions of VET, but accredited VET is accredited VET is accredited VET. Right. So they are using the same product. But the way they, they're, they're taught, the facilities that they're taught in, the uh, industry links of the teachers are quite different from a dedicated vocational education provider and that can manifest itself in the quality of the outcomes. Craig touched upon a good point. Industry uh, has a very, very 
um, clear view about the, ch the differences in between what can come out of a school-based vet program and what can come out of a, a, a traditional vet provider program. And they think vet in schools is wonderful. They like the idea that people are encouraged to go into a work-based learning programs, but quality is of paramount importance to, um, importance to them because there's an expectation that someone who's done a vet course will have some direct applicability straight into the workforce, and that's not always the case. And this is a hot issue at the moment because the Education Council, which is a meeting of uh, state and territory schools ministers, have commissioned a review into post-secondary pathways. And uh, that's due to report, I think, in the middle of um, 2020. So that all those issues will need to be considered by that review. And I believe there's an open an opening for people to contribute to that review, isn't there? Exactly right. They've got until about the middle of December, I think. Yeah. I want to leave on a, a forward-looking note. As we look at the future, what changes do we need to embrace or, or further explore in relation to vet training packages, including whether or not we need to move away from thinking in terms of packages, gentlemen? Well, you are getting into the world of um, other forms of credentialing, because that's what a qualification is. And you're already seeing it in some sectors. Uh, the reality is that if you're a high-level IT application developer, having uh, a certificate from Microsoft is probably as good a credential as you need. You don't need a certificate for an IT. And I, I'm being a bit glib when I say that, but um, where industry sees recognition in other types of credential, they will, and they are not wedded necessarily to the formal accredited vocational education system. Craig? So from my viewpoint, there will be a lot of industry players who would say, uh, we've caused a real problem by using the term training packages because people make assumptions that they entail the curriculum assessments and everything like that. There'd be a number of people that would be turning around and say, why don't we just call them um, industry occupational standards? And I would tend to agree with that. So we define the outcome and let the system head to that way. My only word of caution in that is this notion of trying to think that we create a one-to-one -one relationship between a qualification and an occupation. I just don't think the world of work um, is like that um, anymore. And as Simon said earlier on, um, we've got to be big enough, brave enough um, as a sector to say we need to really look at this seriously um, and set up some trials to actually see um, how it goes. And I'm convinced, I'm totally, totally convinced that there would be a return, particularly of school leavers, back to the VET system because they could see that it's a learning model that suits them and gives them a broad range of options uh, once they graduate. It's also got an economic return, of course, because you can then um, establish the capability within TAFEs and RTOs uh, to deliver on those capabilities rather than have to think about how am I going to deliver uh, differently across um, a thousand qualifications that in some cases, some RTOs, particularly TAFEs, can have on there at their scope. Um, so I just think it gives us great potential to really simplify the system and then really, really make sure that we can focus on quality through the teachers, through better curriculum, 
um, and then a slightly different, lesser hand of uh, regulation over the top of it. Craig, I'm an optimist at heart, so I've got to temper my expectations. I imagine TAFE itself is a big ship to turn around. The whole vet sector is a big ship. What sort of patients do we need to, uh, to be starting to expect some of what you're talking about to actually grip and, and take effect? It will need a uh, bit of thinking. Part of our challenge at the moment is um, people can't think outside of our current training package and competency-based model. But heck, in, 19, in the mid-1980s, when we were worried about in industry restructuring and bringing down uh, trade barriers and the like, and we were worried about uh, workers losing their, their jobs, we changed the approach. It's now 30-odd years on, um, and I think we're big enough and advanced enough as a country that we can look about changing that again. And so we've got to seriously look at where are the entrenched interests in the model um, and see how we try to break some of those interests down. And it's not about the interests of TAFEs, it's not about the interests of providers, it's not about the interests of uh, industry. In the end, we're competing in a global marketplace for skills. Uh, and if we don't do something, um, I do worry that we'll become um, a little bit marooned in a global marketplace for skills. Yeah, and I think the way to do that is to partner with people and stakeholders in specific areas where everybody wants to make the change. If you've got industry on side, if you've got uh, training providers on side, then there's already the imperative to make some change and you just got to get the early adopters out there and trial this and pilot this uh, and you'll get less resistance. Yep. Simon Walker, thank you. Thank you. Craig Robertson, thank you. Thank you. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government, Department of Employment, Skills, Small and Family Business. For more information, please visit ncver.edu.au.